turn to God's Word, I thought I'd start with a picture. Um, do any of you know what a linchpin is? Hands? Linchpin? Anybody got what, what, what that is? Okay, for those of you who don't, I'll explain really briefly. Um, a linchpin is uh, it's, it's a little pin that you kind of slip in the, in the end, normally of a wheel axle kind of configuration. And it's this little pin that, that slips through at the very end that just kind of holds all the bearings or all the different pieces of, of a wheel um, configuration together. And uh, it's, it's incredibly small and seemingly insignificant, but it's very, very important. It keeps everything else in place, okay? You've probably ridden on things with linchpins in them and didn't even realize it. You would realize it if you lost the linchpin, though, uh, because it would all fall, fall apart and you would be on your back. Uh, and people have taken this, uh, this little, simple, but necessary uh, piece and kind of used it in a metaphorical way in our language. So people say things like, it was the linchpin of the defense's case. Or they're a linchpin employee in that organization. Or that player is a linchpin to the team's playoffs hopes, or whatever it is. So the linchpin bears this unusual weight. Nothing happens without it. All other things depend on it. And without the pin, the wheel falls apart, the case is dismissed, and the team has no, no shot. That's what a linchpin is, and that's how it's used. You know, there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not history has a purpose and has a point to it. And if history were a, a kind of a moving body of water, uh, the question is, is it just spilling over in any direction? Or is there a channel that's been cut ahead of it where the water actually follows the channel by design? Does history have a point and a purpose is the larger question. And the Christian faith answers emphatically, yes, it does. It has a unified purpose, a glorious purpose. One big point, the promise-making and keeping creator of the universe is steering human history to its scheduled climax. And what is that conclusion? It's this. The climax of history is the return of the divine Son of God to complete the rescue of a people that he's forming even now. That's the conclusion. That's the plan. And the purpose of history is therefore to show the greatness of Jesus Christ and demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign goodness of the Father. History summarized is God glorified. That's the point of human history. And if that's where history is headed, then how does it get there? What are these linchpin moments, we could say, in history? Does history have a linchpin at all? Something, an event so critical that without it, history would be derailed and would lose that final climax and purpose. Well, we've uh, spent this Christmas season in, of all places, the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 5 records one such linchpin moment in history. Revelation, if you don't know, is a vision that's given to a man named John, uh, and he documents this in order to bring hope to people who are following Jesus who are suffering in that time. And it's encouraging, this vision is, because it shows how God will be victorious in the end. Evil and God's enemies are judged, and God delivers his people as promised in this spectacular way, in spectacular fashion, through the Son. But there's a little speed bump we hit in the beginning of the book of Revelation, which is that it was hard finding a suitable person, a qualified hero, you could say, 
to bring an end to the story, to, to finish out this plan that God has. And so this universal search begins high and low, under the earth, all around the earth, for a person with limitless knowledge and power, and it turns out it's kind of hard to find a person like that. And so initially, it seems like hope is lost, and history, in the end, is pointless. And then an elder in the book of Revelation nudges John and says, hey, there's See that guy? See the one coming? He's the one worthy for the job. And this is this linchpin moment we've been waiting for. This elder, he's, he talks to John about this worthy one, this, this coming one. And he gives him a couple titles we looked at. He says that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Or in other words, his enemies don't stand a chance. He's the root of David, which means he's a king. He's going to bring this unified kingdom that's far better than any utopia that you and I can dream up. But all this time, we've been hearing titles about him, but we haven't actually seen him described until this morning in our text. We get to meet him. And John puts these titles aside and just describes what he sees instead. What do you think this hero of history looks like? How will God choose to reveal what he's like? You learn a lot about a person and how they present themselves, and how will God do that? Well, let's find out. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word in Revelation verses, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, um, and there's some in the lobby if you'd like to, to grab one. Uh, but here's what it says. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And I'll read through verse 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Amen. You can be seated. The plans of God to judge and save depend on the reigning Lamb of God who was slain. The plans of God to judge and save depend on the reigning Lamb of God who was slain. We'll look at this juxtaposition, this odd uh, presentation of this hero of history in a couple different ways. We'll see that he's a slain lamb to start off, then we'll see that he's a reigning lamb, and we'll bring it back to Christmas. Because you might be wondering, what does Revelation 5 have to do with Christmas? So let's start off by looking at this image of a slain lamb. And before we jump at the, and look at what the, why he manifests himself as a lamb, let's just talk about imagery. Okay, Revelation is a, a book that's part of a, a type of writing in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. And this uh, type of writing uses imagery to communicate. Okay? So the readers would have expected to find this kind of description all throughout this book. Uh, and they would know that John's not trying to give a medical description of what the Son of God looks like. Okay? 
In the same way, if you opened up a comic book and you found only words in that type of writing, you would be surprised because normally images are a part of how comic books uh, communicate, right? And apocalyptic literature is kind of the same way. In Revelation alone, Jesus is described in very different ways. So this is not an attempt to kind of give you a, you know, he's six foot three and he's about this kind of build and, you know, it's not that. There's a purpose to the presentation of, of this lamb. You probably haven't seen a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and neither have I, but it's this image that's used to communicate things. And so we need to keep that in mind. Imagery is very important. It's not to say that it's not, okay? Because God is, is present everywhere all the time, right, is what the scriptures teach. And so how he manifests himself is intentional. It has a point. So in, in Exodus, when he's um, guiding the people, right, at the pillar of fire at night to intimidate his enemies, to protect his people, when he shows up at Mount Sinai with lightning and thunder and all things impressive, it's, it's to get something across. When he just whispers to Elijah, there's a reason why he manifests himself the way that he does. And so, this is interesting. Of all the options that God has to show what he is like, to manifest his presence, he's already present, but how would he manifest his presence how would he show up in this linchpin moment in history? Well, it says that these four living creatures and elders saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What an interesting move. That the qualified closer of history decides to reveal himself and step forward as a killed lamb. Why would he do that? Well, just like the other titles that we've seen in Revelation 5, of Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, there's a history behind the image of this lamb, and particularly a suffering or a crucified or a, a killed, slaughtered lamb. So I want to kind of chase two lines back into the Old Testament to show you why it's such a revealing image and choice that God makes here. The two lines of, of, or themes we're going to trace have to do with the Passover lamb and the suffering servant who we heard about earlier from Isaiah 53. So the Passover lamb is a theme all throughout the scriptures. You've probably heard of the celebration of Passover, right? If you picked up your Bible and opened up to Exodus 12, you'd have all the history there as to how it begun. And the Jews, if you remember, were still in bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh was stubbornly refusing to let them go. There had been nine plagues and the guy was still hanging on. Unbelievable. But then in Exodus 12, God starts setting up this ceremony that Israel is supposed to keep for years to come. And it's kind of an odd one. They're supposed to kill a lamb at twilight and put its blood on the door frames of their house and eat their meal, eat this lamb, but in kind of a travel-ready stance. That's what Passover is. Now, Passover wasn't meant to be a one-time thing. Exodus 12, 13 through 14, listen to what it says. God speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. 
And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And there is more to it that follows. They're not supposed to eat leaven for seven days and lots of things that follow. But if you know the story, God, of course, struck down the firstborn children of Egypt while passing over the houses of those of his people who had painted the door frames of their house with the blood of the lamb. Now, why is God setting up traditions on this kind of night? I wonder if the people thought, is, is this really the time, you know, to break out the tradition? It was a significant night. Obviously, it was the deliverance of his people, but the glory of this is in the details because from the beginning, God wanted his people to understand that their deliverance would not be dependent on the, the moral abilities of the people inside of the house, but it would be dependent on the blood of a sacrificed lamb that God would protect and qualify his people for deliverance through an acceptable sacrifice. Faith would be the means for their deliverance. And he was teaching that then. And that's what this image has to do with. The Passover lamb. Now, if you look at the suffering servant in Isaiah 53... Isaiah refers to Israel as a type of servant in a couple different places in this book, but there's a segment where the description of this suffering servant becomes so specific and so narrow, it's as if they're describing a certain person. And we heard about that earlier, right? The sufferer who would come. And you don't need to turn there, but just some of the phrases that we heard he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He's smitten by God. Who is this person who is despised and smitten by God? And how does the suffering of this specific person bring us peace and healing, as it says? Why does God punish him? And why does he stay as quiet as a lamb to the slaughter, it says? It says in verse 10, Yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, it was the will of the Lord that did this, that put the, the, the sin of his people on the sufferer. And it was a willing action where the sufferer signed on to this and agreed to this. To become this payment so that people could be made righteous before God. Now, how do these themes get resolved? Why are we going back to the Old Testament? Well, with the Passover ceremony, there were thousands of lambs that were sacrificed to commemorate God's deliverance. All those lambs would be replaced by one lamb, Jesus in Luke's retelling of, of Jesus' life and death, he does something brilliant in chapter 22 of Luke. He starts describing the Passover and at the same time is describing Christ's march to the cross. 
And he's intentionally drawing parallels to this. It says in Luke 22, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And it says in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which, Passover, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So the disciples are going and trying to make arrangements and set up the Passover while the chief priests are trying to track down the Passover lamb who is Jesus to sacrifice him. Both Passovers are being prepared at the same time so that the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed so that God would pass over the sins of his people and not, not in a temporary way, looking forward to something, but in a final definitive way where the sins of his people would be blotted out forever. Listen to Peter's words about Christ in 1 Peter 1. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why would we do that? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Well, what were we ransomed with? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Paul picks up the same language in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or yeast gets all the way through, you could say? Cleanse out the old leaven, which is kind of a picture of sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why would you do that? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you see that the writers of the scriptures understand the connection? They're saying all of those shadows, all of those themes and trajectories and unfulfilled atonements for sin were driving at this one final Passover lamb who would come. And the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, do you remember what John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is this Lamb. Jesus is this Passover sacrifice. Jesus is this great suffering servant. And so when he steps forward to enact the plans of God, it should not surprise us that he steps forward as a slaughtered Lamb standing. He manifests himself as a slaughtered lamb because the judgment of God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people are dependent on it. And the question will remain the same as it was in Exodus 12, which is, has the blood of the lamb been applied to the heart of this person or not? Will be the deciding question in the end. And this great Passover lamb, this great sufferer, makes this great exchange called the gospel. All human beings are guilty before God and living for themselves. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. And there is no way for us to undo our natural bent, which is to live for ourselves. And so to live what we feel like is is a somewhat moral life, is an offense to the God who made us for his purpose. This independence that we worship is 
in biblical terms, sin when it's before God. But the astounding thing about the gospel is that it's God who steps forward himself to pay for these infinite offenses. He becomes a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and lives this perfect life and obeys God and lives a life that only deserves commendation. And instead, God directs his life. He cuts that channel to the cross where he suffers and dies to make a sufficient payment for sin. And he who deserves only praise chooses to take on himself the sin penalty of other people to satisfy the wrath of God. Our culture wants to make Christianity about ethical standards that a bunch of conservative people agree on in a room. And that's not the center of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That is the grounds for all the Christian faith and for all of Christian living that follows from it. Is Jesus the sacrificed Lamb of God? It is not a political persuasion to be a Christian. It is to be humbled by this good news gospel that God has come and taken on flesh and stood in our place and absorbed the wrath of God and given us victory through His resurrection. That's what Christianity is about. That's why we worship. And everything flows from that great exchange that happens. Everything does. And if you understand that God was willingly sacrificed to take an everlasting punishment that you deserve, your heart will follow him anywhere. It makes complete sense out of martyrdom and everything else that the Christian church has followed in. Any sacrifice, any sense of obedience makes perfect sense when the great sacrifice is understood. And so God chooses, of all things, to manifest himself as a lamb that was slain for the sins of his people. Don't you want to worship a God like this? Can you honestly hold back yourself from admiring what this story is saying when you think about what it's really communicating? What greater story has ever been told? Do we need any more reason to worship than knowing that God himself has stepped forward to pay the price that he required? Is there anything else required for worship than that? So I was thinking about this text and just what it compels in us. I wrote a poem called The Pole, and here's what it says. The bleeding of the bloody lamb, it thrusts, compels, spearing my stubbornness. His soaked cross and willingness disarms objections, inviting daily crosses in. His I thirst dries my complaints, creating thirsts in me. His father forgive them, cuts my resting resentments, paying debts with paid ones. His my God, my God, why have you forsaken, puts me in the family photo, welcoming the meddler. His it is finished, finishes me, smiling now at slavery. Return to Calvary and drop the Brit in bridle. Those pulls are not as strong as this. He has given all he has. Watching him outpoured, I am stripped of power and moved to move. The pull grows stronger. I am loved to love. This is the heart 
of Christianity. God come, embodied, lived, crucified, risen. And while it's true that Jesus of Nazareth suffered in order to make payment for sin, notice that in the image, the sacrificed lamb is standing. Notice that he is risen and resurrected. He's been raised to a position of limitless power and glory. What a contrast. Slaughtered and sovereign at the same time. And this is why we find that he's also a reigning lamb. In verses 6 and 7, if we continue on, it describes him with these sevens, seven horns, seven eyes, and seven is this number of completion or fullness in the scripture. If you've got seven of something, you've got what is needed essentially. And these horns that are described here are a symbol of power in the Old Testament. If you look at Daniel 7 and 8, and it's talking about rulers, it talks about horns in this way. Or in Luke 1, 68 and 69, the dad of John the Baptist says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So even though the lamb has marks of being slain, don't mistake that for weakness because he has these seven horns which signify his strength and might and power. He also has seven eyes that have to do with sovereignty. If you ever been told you've got eyes in the back of your head or kind of this idea that you, you know things that you shouldn't typically know. And somehow as, as eyes multiply in the scriptures, they're kind of adding to the sense of sovereignty or of, of knowledge, of understanding. We know this because of what John tells us, that these seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's likely that Zechariah 3.9 and 4.10 are in the background of this language when in Zechariah it says, These seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So we have this contrast of this slaughtered lamb that seems weak, but he has these seven horns and this sovereignty and this omniscience. He knows everything. He sees everything all at the same time. He is meek and mighty. He is reigning and he is slain at the same time. And so finally, this moment that we've been waiting for comes in verse 7 and 8, doesn't it? When it says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's interesting that all throughout the book of Revelation, there's this divine father type God figure and there's a divine lamb at the same time. Aside from this chapter, where there's several references to the lamb, there's 22 other references to this lamb. This is an important character in this book. And they're often pairing God and this lamb together as if they're the same in this way. So, in 7, 9 and 10 and 17, it says, A great multitude cries out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In 21, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's this in, intentional refrain throughout the book of Revelation saying, These, these two are, are the same. They're working in conjunction together. They are both divine. 
And if you read Daniel 7, we won't do it now, verses 9 through 14, you have this image of this majestic fatherly type figure on the throne and then one like a son of man who comes before him to receive the kingdom and the people and the nations and the glory from him. That's exactly what's happening in Revelation 5. Again, this is tying a bow on all of the imagery of the Old Testament that's come up to this point. It's important to notice that in 7 and 8, it, you're, not, you're not ripping this scroll out of the, the person on the, th- or the being on the throne's hands. There's a sense of, yes, you're the qualified one. You're the one I've been waiting to give this to. The kingdom's all yours. So here we have a linchpin of history. Now this is certainly the climax of history, but there was this little moment a few thousand years ago that was a linchpin moment as well with the birth of Christ. You see, this dichotomy of slain but standing, of of mighty but meek, of these things that we find in Revelation 5, we find in Bethlehem as well in thinking about Jesus. Because we, we find that the baby in the manger is clearly a king, right? People show up and give him gold. That didn't happen to me when our four kids came out. You know? No one did that. And these nobles are asking, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Which makes the kings all territorial, right? And, and freaks them out. The stars are telling the story of this baby, Angels are announcing his arrival. This clearly is divine, right? The baby is a king. Matthew makes the connection through the Old Testament prophet Micah when he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's what led them to Bethlehem. So the baby's clearly a king, but the baby is also destined to die. This lyric in this song, Old Little Town of Bethlehem, jumped out at me this year, and it says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes and fears are found in Bethlehem on this night. We know that he's given the name Jesus because he will, quote, save his people from their sins. We hear Simeon in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if you've been reading that devotional this last week, but it's been so rich to think about Luke chapter 2. When he's promised, this man Simeon has promised to see the Messiah before he dies. And in Luke 2, verse 34 and 35, he, he grabs the baby, he holds him up, he, he rejoices in the provision of God for finally giving Israel their Redeemer. And it says in verse 33 of Luke 2, And his father and mother marveled at what he said about them. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Christopher Ash picks up on that. I want to read you a quote that just, if you've been reading this, read this just a few days ago. He says, and so Simeon looks Mary in the eye and says to this hopeful young mother, a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
What a terrible word to have to speak to a young woman at a time of her life that most obviously speaks of hope. It's going to hurt you terribly. You will love this little boy more deeply perhaps than you love any human being on earth, but in three decades' time, you will stand as a grief-stricken witness at a Roman crucifixion. And in that place of ugliness, agony, misery, shame, and nakedness, you will watch your son die the most terrible death. You will see the sun go dark, you will feel the earth shake, and a sword will pierce your heart. And that's because the work that Mary's boy will do comes at an awesome cost. He can only be light by entering darkness. He can only save sinners by bearing wrath. He can only be glorious with the glory of God's self-giving love. And so, right from the very earliest days of Jesus' life on earth, the shadow of the cross falls upon him and upon all who love him. For the sword that pierces Mary's heart will make its terrible sharpness felt in all who love Jesus, upon whom the shadow of his cross falls in daily dying to self. The Christian life is one of joy, but it is also one of pierced hearts. Don't be surprised when putting others first hurts, when obedience seems costly, when letting go of past grievances feels painful. But it is in our taking up of the cross and filling up in our own persons what has to be filled up of the sufferings of Christ that his light shines to the world. See, this baby is a dividing line from the start. He will expose hearts. He will be the way that God determines whose hearts are his and whose hearts are not. Jesus is the linchpin for the relationship with God. And receiving him means everything holds together. You see, Christmas is one of these linchpin moments in history. And from an eternal perspective, it will be interpreted very differently. Some will see it as a day of joy, of hope, of salvation. And others will see it as a day when a great divide happened. When their hearts were revealed. And so the Lamb of Bethlehem is very much like the Lamb of Revelation 5. This contrast of strength and weakness of being a king and also being destined to die. I want us to ponder one question that comes out of this text. And it's a simple question. I think it's a question that probably bounced around in Mary's head. It's a question that history will answer. It's a question that that Andrew Peterson song asks. It's a question that you and I face, and it's this. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? That's really the, the, the claim of Revelation 4 and 5, isn't it? Worthy are you to take the scroll? And this question will send your life in very different directions. It will change your Christmas and how you experience it. It will change your eternal trajectory. This is the question of questions. Is Jesus of Nazareth worthy or not? If he's not then life is up for grabs. Life's purpose and destination and goal are self-determined. And progress in its truest sense is impossible and life becomes this short-lived, self-guided tour that we're on. It also strips Christmas of, of significance and Bethlehem of significance. And it kind of becomes this cultural phenomenon like other countries might have about when their religious leaders were born. There are no linchpin moments in history if Christ is unworthy. 
And Paul actually gets after this a little bit in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the implications of the resurrection being true. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. And he's right. If the slain lamb isn't standing, he is in no position to make any kind of lasting difference. He's one of many who makes small tweaks in human history, and that is all. But these two linchpin moments, the birth of Christ and Revelation 5, they say differently. And so, if, if you don't think Christ is worthy this morning, I'd ask you to consider, strongly consider, just some reasonable questions. Like, how do the extraordinary events surrounding his birth get explained? How do the messianic predictions about his life dovetail so nicely together into one historical figure? How is the impact of this ordinary carpenter in the known world uh, just far expand what a normal life would be? How are his words in the gospel still shaping our cultural conversations today? How are the events of his death and resurrection and the lives of his disciples explainable apart from his worth? You see, not believing Christ is worthy needs some explanation. Because there are historical facts and things that we point to and ancient manuscripts that document that everyone understood the significance of this man. He has shaped, literally, human history. And so to disregard him is not only irrational, but it's fighting against the trend of history. So I'd plead with you, if you don't know Christ this morning, take another look. Consider the compelling witness of history and of the Scripture to the significance and the worth of Jesus Christ. It is not irrational to believe so. This will one day be a historically established fact. The universe and everyone in it will agree. And we have the opportunity to have our lives shaped by this knowledge now. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, wrestle with his worth. God is patiently waiting for many to acknowledge the worth of his son. Don't you find yourself impatient when you know there's something great that another person won't consider? you got to see that movie where you start like commanding each other, right? you got to go to the restaurant. you got to hear this, this artist. You've got to do this. Because there's something in us that wants things that are worthy to be known, right? We want those, to share those things and experience those things. So that's our plea this morning, that Jesus Christ is worthy. Take another look. You missed it. Study the historical documents more carefully. There will be a time that it will be too late to consider this question. So do it now. For those of you who are Christians here, I think we ask the same question, but in a slightly different way. Is he worthy? This is a reorienting question, isn't it? What would it be like to live with Revelation 5 in mind? It's a normal Sunday. You're walking in. If you're honest, your heart is probably bored with things of the gospel. You're probably here out of more routine than anything else. What if we asked in that moment, is he worthy of my focus and adoration right now? How does Christ's worth change my heart when I'm entering into worship? Maybe you're being tempted. Tempted to live for yourself. 
right? You feel that pull of sin. You're, you're strongly considering kind of hiding from the shepherd for a while and just kind of enjoying what you want to enjoy because you deserve it. You see, temptation is a question of worth, isn't it? What's worth more in this moment? Temptation blinds us to the corruption of sin, but what if our focus in that moment wasn't convincing ourselves of, of the badness of something, but of the goodness and the worth of Jesus? What if we asked what Jesus Christ was worthy of in that moment? Maybe you're not appreciated at work. What could cause you to bear up under that frustration and, that, and persist in being diligent at work even though it's not ideal? The question is not, is my boss worthy, right? That's what we want to ask. Is this organization worthy? And lo and behold, it's not again, right? And every day, you go through this cycle. But what if the question, is Jesus worthy of this? Is Christ worthy of fighting for a testimony that points to him? Maybe you're suffering for Christ's name. You've been poorly treated or misrepresented, and you can fixate on the injustice of it all, on what you deserve and are not getting or whatever it is. But we could ask, is Christ worthy of me suffering well and imitating him in this? Maybe you're exhausted from the Christmas season and there's a clear kingdom opportunity in front of you. Maybe it's helping someone out or putting time into making the holidays more intentional than, than maybe you would if you just coasted through it. Maybe it's stopping from rushing around and acknowledging that he's worthy of our undivided attention. He's worthy of letting finding the perfect gifts go and the Pinterest house go. He's worthy of all those things. See, even Christmas is a battle of worth. This is a question that I think will serve us well. Is Christ worthy? Because you'll find that he's worthy of everything. Right? You'll never answer that question, no, sorry. He comes up just short, almost there. You'll never answer that way if you know him. And so he'll become an unending source of holiness and love. In 1727, a, a little prayer meeting began. I don't know if I've told you this story or not, but it became known as the Moravian Movement, where a small group of people prayed 24 hours around the clock. And this group existed for years and years and years, so much so that by 1792, with an unbroken uh, prayer life, 24 hours a day, and obviously their group grew, 65 years later, they had sent out 300 missionaries to unreached people groups to the West Indies, Turkey, North America, all kinds of places. But it's rumored that some of the very first missionaries sent out by the Moravians were a couple of 20-something-year-old guys who heard about an island where someone was keeping two to 3,000 slaves. And the master of those slaves refused to let any minister or preacher come to the island. He even said if they, if they got shipwrecked on the island, he'd, he'd house them for a few days and then send them away. And so these two 20-something-year-old men decided to sell themselves into lifetime slavery. To go to make sure that these two to 3,000 people heard about Christ and his kingdom. And the rumor, the story is, that when they were sailing away, they yelled out something that became the mantra 
and the war cry of the Moravian movement, which lasted for over a hundred years. And it was this. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Just imagine what answering the question, is he worthy, will lead us to. May we ask this question and find a thousand ways to say yes. He's worthy of staying pure, of working in undesirable circumstances, of slowing down, of investing when it feels like a hopeless marriage, and forgiving others, and suffering in order to evangelize, and hours of worshipful adoration, and stewarding your possessions for kingdom things, for being patient, for giving your life to missions, for parenting prayerfully, for spending your retirement in ministry service. He's worthy of all those things. And I pray that God helps us to discover that as a body of his, of his church. May our lives illustrate the answer to that question, is he worthy with a resounding, yes, he is. May that be how God helps us to see the worth of his glorious son and live our lives in light of Revelation 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for letting us in on the climax of history in Revelation 5. Thank you, God, that you did not leave history to chance. You did not leave salvation to uh, the, the moral abilities of your people. You acted, and because of that, many here are saved. And God, as we consider this question, is he worthy or is he not, I pray that it would, it would motivate us from the right place and in the right way to follow you, God, to worship you with all of our hearts and minds and lives, that this Christmas season, God, would be an opportunity for us to see your worth and to experience your glory in a new way. I pray that you would lead us in this. I pray that those who, who, who may be here this morning who don't know you, who just look at your son as a, as a religious leader and as someone who a group follows and there's a book written about him. And God, I just pray that you would create a hunger to see. Create a hunger to see the worth of Christ. God, for, for the family here, God, as we go our many different ways, as we, as we sit in family gatherings, as we serve our communities, as we rest even, God, I pray that your worth would drive, would motivate, would, would prompt us and prod us, and that your glory, God, would be our joy and our satisfaction, be the engine of what our, our lives are all about as a church. We love you, we thank you that you came, and we thank you that you're coming. Help us to wait for you well. In Jesus' name, amen.